1 Samuel chapter 26. And we're going to be looking at the story of David. Uh, as many of you know, we are on the series called Becoming a Person After God's Own Heart. And our desire is that David is sort of illustrative of the journey of, of people that are following God. What, how, how do we grow? How do we mature? How do we become the person that God wants us to be? The unique thing about David was that he was that person that pursued God uh, more than anything else. Uh, and, and we see that David is human, just like everybody else. And, and he wasn't perfect. So we're going to look at that story, and we're going to kind of walk through a particular incident in his life that I think uh, all of us could identify with. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at chapter 26. So the story begins here, and it's one of those stories that sort of kind of define David's life because he's in a very dark place. I'm not sure if you've ever been in a place where um, like you feel like despondent or discouraged. Some of us as Christians growing up, we kind of wonder if that's actually a normal part of Christian experience. If, if we are a follower of God, then why do we even get discouraged? Aren't we supposed to be people of joy and happiness? You know, there was a book many years ago written by John Bunyan called The Pilgrim's Progress. It's actually a very famous book, probably next to the Bible. It's one of the most read books throughout uh, our church history. And it's a story about a man named Christian. It's an allegory. And he begins this journey from his hometown to this place called the city of God. And as he's going through this journey, he goes through a different difficult path. And in one particular path, he comes on a very difficult place where he falls into a deep, miry, muddy hole called the Slough of Despondence. And he's stuck there, and he's, and he's trying to get out. And as he's trying to sort of figure out how to get out, he can't get out. It's almost like quicksand. He's sinking deeper and deeper into the ground. And finally, he yells out, help. And from the sky, this person comes. His name is help. And he reaches down and lifts him from despair. That help is actually the symbol of the Holy Spirit. And, I, and that analogy of falling into despair or darkness is actually a very common experience in the Christian life. I think for everyone here, there are times where we've fallen into some, some really dark places in our lives, where we are in despair and, and we are sort of wanting to give up and, and everything seems hopeless and, and helpless. The word darkness is interesting in the Bible because in many ways, darkness is a metaphor um, for evil. It's a metaphor for things that are not good. Psalm 1828 uh, says, You, O Lord, keep my lamp burning. My God turns my darkness into light. And then in Colossians 1.13, it says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his son that he loves. As I think about darkness, many of us wrestle with is that there are different sort of expressions of darkness. And, and, and one of the things about sort of social uh, issues and problems is that there are increased symptoms of sort of what I call a dark world. Things like depression, mental illness, suicide are all part of the domain of darkness. And, and these are sort of the, uh, the consequence of some of the things that have happened way beginning at the fall. And one of the things that we realize is that even in our day that things like depression is on the rise. Major depression, and ironically, we know more about depression now than we've ever had before, and more and more diagnoses of people who are falling into depression. According to one statistic, the diagnosis of major depression has risen 33% uh, from the year since 2013. 
And one of the sort of the uh, outcomes of, of depression are people who kind of give up on life altogether. Suicide rates have increased. U.S. US suicide rates are the highest since World War II, according to federal data. And we see that opiate use. We see drug use. All these are sort of uh, ways in which we try to sort of placate and and pacify our our depression and our our suicidal thoughts. Well, the reality of these thoughts, they're not new thoughts. At some point in our lives, I think every single one of us have experienced thoughts of sort of being in such deep despair that we want to just kind of give up. So how do you deal with, with darkness in your life? And as we look at it in the Christian life, that I think part of the, the Christian journey is that we have to go through these dark places. Now, one example of this is that we find this story in chapter 26. David is in a dark place. He is supposedly the, the next king of Israel. He's supposed to be anointed by God. He is going to be the next king. And yet his father-in-law, a man named Saul, who is the current king, is out to get him. Imagine that you're living your life in, in exile as a refugee, going from place to place, hiding out. And that's what David w- was. And he, and he came to a point of a pretty severe darkness. We see that a lot of the psalms that were written kind of reflect David's sort of inner uh, uh, confusion. And he's basically saying, God, where are you? And if you've ever felt that in your life where you're screaming out to God, God, where are you? I think all of us can relate. Even Jesus on the cross, as darkness sort of uh, came upon the earth as he was on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a cry that I think all of us have, have prayed at some point. And in this particular story, his father-in-law has, has come, uh, and, and he's in a cave. He just heard that David was in a particular place, so he's going to go and, and, and kill David. Imagine that your father-in-law is after you to kill you. And so David is running, and he has a choice to make. Does he succumb to the darkness of his heart, of his mind, where he could sort of alleviate the problem on his own, or does he trust God? And that's the dilemma that David's facing. We know that as, as David's on the run, that Saul has been continually pursuing him. In chapter 24, there's a similar story in which David has a chance to kill Saul, to get rid of the darkness of his life. And one of the things that he does is that instead of killing Saul, he sort of says, you know what, God, you're in control of this. Even though I don't know what you're doing at this moment in my life, I'm going to trust that you're going to take care of this darkness. Well... Chapter 26, it continues on. You see, darkness doesn't go away. It continually pursues David. And look at this in chapter 26, verse 1. The Ziphilites uh, went to Saul at Gilbeh and said, Is not David hiding in the hills of Hakaliah, which faces Jezimon? So Saul went to the desert of Ziph with his, three, uh, with his 3,000 chosen men of Israel. So it's interesting. David had 3,000, and so this guy brings 3,000. And notice his mission, to search there for David. Saul made his camp beside the roll on the hill of Hakaliah facing Jezimon. But David stayed in the desert. When he saw that Saul had followed him there, he sent out scouts and learned that Saul had definitely arrived. So imagine the scene now. David is sort of camped out in the hills. Saul doesn't know where David is. And David sends out his scouts and he sees Saul kind of in the valley. This is his chance to take the matters into his own hands, to alleviate the darkness that is sort of pursuing him. And so in verse 5, 
David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. And he saw where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army, had laid down. And Saul was lying beside the camp with the army encamped around him. So he has sort of the scout's perspective. He sees where Saul is. And David asked Amalelech, the Ammonite, and Abishar, Zerulah, Joab's brother, who will go down into the camp with me to Saul? And then he says, I'll go with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there was Saul. Notice this. At night, he goes and he sees Saul lying asleep in the camp with his fear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Now, here's the thing. As they're sneaking down, there's David's chance. Here's Saul lying down. He has a sphere uh, next to his head. And then notice what Abishai says to David. Today, God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now, let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of my spear, and I won't strike him twice. Now, imagine this scene. David has the opportunity to get rid of his enemy, Saul. And so what would you do in the situation like that? Well, you see, for David, I, I, I think there was this sort of inner conflict. Yes, he's the anointed king of Israel. Yes, God has destined him to be the next king. But what David does is something that is, is what a, a God-fearing person would do. Rather than trusting in his own ability to solve his own problems, he basically relinquishes control. And he says, no, don't destroy him, he says in verse 9. Who can lay hand on, on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him. Now, this is a prophetic statement. The Lord himself will strike him. Either his time will come and he will die or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I shall lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now, get the sphere, water jug that are near his head, and let's go. Now, here's what David's going to do. He's going to use that as an illustration for something happening later on. But here's the first point that I want to address is this. That instead of David trusting in his own ability to solve his own problems, he relinquishes control and he trusts God's providence. He sees that, that Saul is there, but, he, but one of the things he says is this. In God's time, God will get rid of Saul. Now, if you're David, or if I was David, I would think to myself, man, it would be so much easier to accelerate the process. I'll just get rid of Saul and I'll just become the next king. It, 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 because God has already anointed me the next king. Why, you know, why should I wait any longer? But we learn from this lesson here is this. That David's restraint was because he trusted in God. David had no idea how God would deal with Saul. But his trust in God meant that he would trust in his promises in God's time and in God's way. It was not David's way. It wasn't David's solution. Now, if, if you were to think about this, this is the way in which a lot of us deal with our, our problems in our lives, our darkness. We try to take the matters into our own hands. When it's dark for us, sort of our minds, we focus on our problems. Our problems become bigger, and we lose the sense of God's presence. And I think David might have been tempted. I know his friend wanted him to, his general wanted him to uh, make it a lot easier. But the question that I have for all of us is, is when, when things become dark, who do you trust? You know, there's an indicator called the trust barometer, 
which every year they, they come out with this report. And one of the things that they say in this report, it's a 28 country trust index, that the trust in the US has dropped significantly in America. We don't trust our, our government anymore. We don't trust our military. We don't trust our business leaders. One of the things that, that we're realizing is that trust is decreasing on every level. So the question I ask is this, who do you trust? Now, for many of us, the answer is easy. Sometimes you can't trust your friends. Sometimes you, can, you can't trust your family. Sometimes you can't even trust the people that you respect, whether it's your pastors or whether it's your teachers. So who do you trust? And the answer that most of us in our society go, go, comes back to is I trust myself. I trust me. But here's what the Bible says. That you cannot trust in yourself. That actually me, trusting in myself, trusting in my own abilities, is actually the worst thing we can do. And the reason that we are not trustworthy is simply this, because our hearts are deceitful. Our mind and our will has been tainted by sin. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Here's the problem with human nature is that we ourselves cannot trust ourselves. Because at the very core, we tend to rationalize our sin. We tend to sort of make up our own excuses. And so here's the danger when things become dark, is that we cling to ourselves. We escape from others. But the thing that David realized was this, that rather than trusting in his own ability to solve his own problems, he relinquished control. He said, basically going back, the Lord himself will strike him. Either this time will come, or he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should do anything to, make, to solve my problem. Now, it's not that David wasn't going to solve his problem. He's actually going to use this illustration. He's going to take the sphere, a spear and, and the helmet to show Saul that he could have killed him. But what David was trying to say is, look, your life is in God's hands. And I think one of the lessons about trusting God is this, that when you trust, you have to learn how to wait. And that's the thing that most of us have a hard time doing, especially in our generation, that we don't want to wait. We want things to be done immediately. We lose a sense of patience. As one writer, Richard Hendricks, says this, second only to suffering. Waiting may be the greatest teacher and trainer in godliness, maturity, and genuine spiritual maturity most of us will ever encounter. The reality is nobody likes to wait. And because we don't like to wait, we run ahead of God. How many times have we like did things like, oh, I just want to help God out. There's a story in the Old Testament named Abraham. Abraham had a wife named Sarah. And the promise that God gave to them in their old age that they will have a son who will become uh, like the sand of the sea, stars in the sky, that he will become the father of a nation. And so Abraham had trusted in God's promise. But here's what Abraham did. When Sarah came to him and says, you know what, I'm kind of getting kind of old. I don't think I'm going to be, have to have a baby. Why don't you have a baby through my maidservant, Hagar? The story of the, you know, the Bible in the, in the Middle Eastern days is that that's kind of the surrogate parenting. And here's what David, I mean, sorry, here's what Abraham should have said. You know what? I am trusting that God is at work here. Even though it doesn't make any sense, I'm going to trust the God's in control. But Sarah said, you know what? Let's take the matters into our own hands. So they had this baby, 
And this baby became, uh, Ishmael became the father of all the Arabs today. It's kind of ironic that the conflict between the Arabs and, and, and the Jews go all the way back to the two sons of Abraham. Because Abraham went ahead of God. I think one of the things that I want to encourage you is this. That the hardest thing we can do as Christians is to wait. And the hardest thing that, one of the hardest things that we can do is just to trust. By waiting and trusting in God's promise, what we are doing is we are relinquishing control. How often do we take matters into our own hands? Whether it's our jobs, whether it's our relationships, whether it's our marriages, or whether it's our kids, whether whatever happens is that, you know, it's not that we, 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 we want to be disobedient, but we just like, God, I don't want to wait any longer. So let me marry this guy who's not a Christian. And so I'm bearing him, and maybe I'll make him a Christian and bring him to church. Or, or let me just go in this route. Maybe I'll take a shortcut at work and, and, and kind of, you know, because I need to make a down payment on the house. Whatever the situation is, the more you circumvent and take shortcuts, the more you are in danger of running ahead of God. And so David was tempted. His, his, the voice that he heard was, let's get rid of this situation. David, your life would be so much easier. But David also did something else. He recognized that even though he could have, he didn't because he trusted in God. And instead of doing what was wrong, he did what was right. He lived righteously and faithfully to God's promise. It wasn't just about understanding God's promise. He lived it faithfully. And so the story continues. So David took, verse 12, he took the sphere and the water jug near Saul's head, and they left. And no one saw or knew about it or did anything. Did anyone wake up? They were all sleeping because, it's interesting, the Lord had put Saul into a deep sleep. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood on top of the hill some distance away. There was a white space between them, and he called out, to the army, and Abner, son of Ner, uh, who was the general. Aren't you going to answer me, Abner? And Abner replied, who are you who calls to the king? So he had no idea what was going on. And David said, you're a man, aren't you? And who is like you in Israel? Why didn't you come and guard the Lord your king? Someone came to destroy your Lord your king. What have you done is not good. As surely as the Lord lives, you and your men deserve to die because you did not guard your master, the Lord's anointed. Look around you. Where are the king's spear and, and the spear and the water jug near his head? And then Saul woke up and he recognizes David's voice and he says, Is that your voice, David, my son? And David replied, Yes, it is, my lord. And he added, Why is my lord pursuing his servant? Basically, he says, Why are you pursuing me? I'm not doing you any harm. I could have killed you before. And guess what, Saul? I could have killed you now. And then he says in verse... 21, Saul says, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son, because you consider my life precious today. I will not try to harm you again. Surely I have acted like a fool and have erred greatly. I don't know if Saul is being sort of deceptive here, or, but, but I think there's a sense of genuineness in what Saul is saying. He, he feels bad that David is sort of, uh, you know, saved his life. But, but we know later on that Saul has continued to pursue him. But David's point is this, and I, I love the lesson that David is teaching Saul. 
He says in verse 22, here's the king's fear, David answered. Let one of your young men come and get it. The Lord, and this is what he said, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands today, but I will not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I value your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from evil. The phrase, verse 23, the Lord rewards righteousness and faithfulness. I think the thing that we are tempted to do when things get dark in our lives, not only do we not trust in God and we take the matters into our own hands, but we sort of disobey and run away from God. That we don't live righteously when we should. And we don't live faithfully according to God's promise. You know, one of the things in, in the Bible is that righteousness and, and faithfulness are, are sort, of the, 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 sort of one coin, two sides of the same coin. That we are to live accordingly and, and remain faithful even when things are not good. David was faithful to God's promise. And, and the beautiful thing about this story is this, that in chapter 31, at the end of uh, Saul's life, David doesn't do anything to Saul, but God in his right time takes care of Saul. And I think the reason that David is a man after God's own heart is he did what was right, even though he was tempted to do what was wrong. David's response is, is really important to understand that, you know, he wanted Saul. Saul, instead of pursuing yourself, instead of pursue the things of God. And when I think about this in the Christian life, so often we are tempted not to live righteously because that's our nature. We self-deceive ourselves. But you know the beautiful thing about, about this story, it reminds us that when you are trusting in God's goodness, you're trusting in God's promise, you're trusting in God's character, that God has your best interest at heart, ultimately. And when you look at what Jesus did when he came uh, down, it, it, God didn't have to do that, but in his mercy and his grace, he reminds us of his genuine love for us, that no matter how difficult, how dark the world has become, that enters, at this point in history, enters light. It's interesting, isn't it, that the, the name of Jesus in John chapter 1 is light. The light of the world has come. And I think as Christians, when we are tempted to do our own thing, Remember this, that all things work together for good for those who love God according to his purpose. That God will reward faithfulness. That God will reward righteousness. And that when you feel like there's nothing else, that you, have, you can't even provide for yourself, Philippians 4.19 says, and God will supply all my needs in Christ Jesus. But the admonition that Jesus gives in Matthew 6.33 is this. Seek first his kingdom, and all these things will be added unto you. You know, as I look over my life, whenever I sought my own kingdom, that's when my life became miserable. When I did my own thing, that's when life started to fall apart. But when I started seeking what God wanted me to do, even though it was hard, I realized one thing, that all things do work together. You know, we don't have, a lot of us don't have a forward perspective, right? We have a backward perspective. We know what happened in the past. But I think as Christians, we also need to have a forward perspective. That everything goes back to understanding that God has your future 
your best interests at heart, that he ultimately, for his kingdom and his glory, that he will let you go through some difficult, dark times. Not to, not a sadistic God who loves to see his children suffer, but in the moment of the darkness, that our character, our righteousness is developed. Rather than running ahead of God, that we trust in God. So what are you struggling with in your life? Are you trusting in your own ability to solve your problem? You know, when I think about the, the gospel, when I think about what Jesus did, it's the very recognition that we couldn't save ourselves. So God came in human form to, dem- to live righteously so that we ourselves, who are clothed in unrighteousness, can be clothed in his righteousness. And sometimes when our minds, m- minds get cloudy and dark, we have to remember this, that even though God is silent, he is still present. Near the end of World War II, members of the Allied forces were often found searching farms and houses for snipers. At one abandoned house, which was reduced to rubble, searchers found their way into the basement. And there on a crumbling wall, the vic- a victim of the Holocaust had, written this, had put the Star of David and wrote these profound words. I believe in the sun, even when it does not shine. I believe in love, even when it is not shown. And I believe in God, even when he does not speak. The silence of God does not mean that he is absent. And when darkness comes, you have to remember, and you have to live, and you have to keep the promise of God and cling to God alone. Remember that first illustration I gave you? That Christian fell into this pit of depression the despondency, sloth of despond. And the only thing he, is, he does is he cries out for help. I want to encourage you. Don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in even people around you as your first source of trust. But instead, trust that God has your good at heart. Let's pray.